Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to Something Rhymes with Purple. I'm Giles Brandreth, and with my friend Susie Dent, we bring you a weekly brand tub of wordy stuff. We just love words and language. We are verbivores. Usually, we're coming to you from Susie's sitting room in Oxford. Today, I'm in the attic at my home in London. Uh, Susie, well, I tried to get her on the line... But I didn't manage to. But don't worry, you're going to hear plenty of her in the next half hour or so. And we're going to be together again, at least virtually, next week. Because like many of you, the Something Rides with Purple team are working from home for a while. So the podcasts may sound a little bit different. But fear not, we will continue recording to share with you our love of words and language. Last week was our 50th episode, so we thought it a perfect time to look back on some highlights from what we've done so far. And if you haven't listened to all 50 episodes yet, now is the ideal time to do so. And hopefully this will whet your appetite to go back and catch up. We want to continue to answer as many of your questions as possible, so please do contact us at the usual address, purple at something else.com. That's something without G, without the G, purple at something else.com. First, a language warning, because some people, of course, aren't at school anymore. A language warning. You'll know that every now and again, we F and Jeff, purely for the professional reason of studying the word's etymology, of course. But if you are listening with your children, please note that there are some swears in this one. <laughs> Fuck me, it happens now and again. But there is poetry too. Yes, a couple of verses that last precisely 20 seconds. Poems that will help you achieve the exact time you need for thorough hand washing. So, welcome to Giles and Susie's Purple Patches. Linguistic highlights from our verbivore year. My gut feeling is this is going to be a lot of fun. So, let's start there. In the gut, with a clip from our episode Caca Fuego, which went out in November of last year. I've got a gut feeling. Exactly. That's where we should start. Where What's the origin of the phrase to... gut feeling? Well, I mean, it's quite interesting because language is, is obviously following society, I guess, in that today modern medicine is hugely focused on the importance of the gut and our intestinal health. And it's said that 
medicine in the future is going to be customized according to the bacteria that we have in our gut and what needs to be replenished. Fecal transplant, sorry to bring this in so early, the new hot cure for many, many conditions. Charles, I'm so, just looking aghast I'm, at this. I'm, no, I'm totally Do you know out about of fecal touch. transplants? I don't oh know about goodness. I didn't know about this this obsession oh, with the gut. The gut is our second brain essentially. And this was clearly recognised in ancient times because the notion of the gut as the seat of our emotions rather than the heart goes all the way um, back to, um, as I say, ancient times. And you can find it in in, um, medieval uh, medicine as well. So the gut feeling is the seat of emotions. If you have a gut feeling, it's following your instincts entirely. And gut itself goes back to um, a really ancient word meaning to pour. So it's the idea of the fluids that are kind of circulating around your body. And you're now telling me that this ancient belief, which our language reveals, having that gut feeling, has some scientific basis and that now people are believing that get the gut right and everything's right. Is that true? Absolutely. But expressions referencing the gut, I mean, you'll find them, uh, you know, some sort of all over English, um, to have a person's guts for garters, to hate a person's guts, to sweat your guts out. Guts are kind of energy and verve and staying power. And also Um, we think of them as being long, stringy things, don't we? Yes, arse ropes, remember? Do you remember my fantastic phrase from centuries ago when they told it as it was and bollocks were bollocks, they were your testicles? Um, Arse ropes were your intestines. Love that. I can never never get enough of that. And that's why you have guts for garters, because these arse ropes are literally... Yeah. Serve as yeah, could be stringy. They could be they could be braces. Okay. Well, we'll get yes or garters. So that's guts. Uh, I didn't realise it was the gut that was the source of everything. There was a that obviously it was once upon a time. Then it became the heart. Well, the heart is today considered to be the seat of emotion, isn't it? And heart famously. That the symbol to heart went into the Oxford English Dictionary, but actually not the symbol itself, but the idea of hearting something, um, which has slipped into English meaning I like or I favourite, or it's all about emotion. Hearting, this is another of these verbalising of a noun. The verbing of a noun, which has to be said has been done since way before Shakespeare. Fine. Remember Shakespeare? Grace me no grace, not uncle me no uncle. He did it all the time. So nothing new there, but... Again, um, it's quite similar to the, to the guts and the intestines, actually. If you go back um, centuries, you will find that the heart was considered the seat of intelligence and intellectual uh, ability as well. So when we learn something by heart, we are learning it in a way that we will then keep it and, and contain it within our memory. To record has got the Latin cordis, meaning heart, in it, because if you're recording something, you are keeping it within your heart as something that you could then draw on in your thoughts. Well, talking of learning things by heart, it seems like the perfect time to introduce you to the first of my 22nd poems. Now, as you probably know, when it comes to washing your hands to keep the dreaded virus at bay, the rules are simple. Wet your hands with clean running water, warm or cold, it doesn't matter. Turn off the tap, apply the soap, plenty of it. Lather your hands by rubbing them together. Don't forget the backs of your hands, between your fingers, under your nails. Keep at it for 20 seconds. It seems, actually, that the timing is key to the operation being successful. According to the experts, less than 20 seconds won't do the trick. So, how to time that perfect 20-second hand wash? A couple of weeks back, the health secretary's first suggestion proved controversial. Matt Hancock recommended singing the national anthem while washing your hands. Hancock's next suggestion was to get your timing right by singing happy birthday twice. 
At this point, uh, the government's PR people got involved and came to me and to the great Dame Judy Dench. Don't know why they didn't come to me and Susie. Anyway, they knew I was a poetry lover and a propagandist for the benefits of learning poetry by heart. They reckoned that Dame Judy was not only a national treasure, but also the nation's most noted Shakespearean actress. Uh, she won awards, actually, for playing Lady Macbeth. She could have done, Out, damn spot! Out, I say! But instead, we chose to do The Owl and the Pussycat. What's lovely about this is that it lasts exactly 20 seconds. So, all right, are you ready for this? Uh, when we did it, and we actually tweeted our efforts, which we did in her kitchen, uh, washing our hands side by side. We got into trouble for that. So please do your social distancing while you wash your hands. Get the soap lathered up, and then you've got 20 seconds, starting now. The owl and the pussycat went to sea in a beautiful pea-green boat. They took some honey and plenty of money, wrapped up in a five-pound note. The owl looked up to the stars above and sang to a small guitar. Oh, lovely pussy! Oh, pussy, my love, what a beautiful pussy you are, you are, you are. What a beautiful pussy you are. Well, that was the first verse of The Owl and the Pussycat by Edward Lear. And we'll make sure, actually, any of the poems that we do include in the programme, scroll down, you should be able to find them. They're in the notes. Now, what's in a name? What's in a name? In March 2019, in our episode uh, Gilden Bollocks, Susie revealed the importance of surnames and how they've served as useful records over the years. She also laughed and swore a lot, and it was all frightfully unprofessional. But it is fascinating. I mean, you're just talking about first names there, but with, with surnames, I mean, some people lived and literally died for their names. William's conquering army, going back to 1066, about a third of them apparently were Flemings, and that meant somebody from Flanders, um, and traditionally associated with trade, etc. But there are still Flemings. There are still Flemings. There is the Fleming banking family, of which yeah. Ian Fleming, of course, the creator of 007 James Bond, was, was a member. But when English merchants started to resent the new competition, the results were quite dramatic. And going back to David McKee, wonderful study of, of surnames. He relates how many of the Flemings who settled in London were actually hunted down by mobs because they were called Flemings and they were forced to say words like bread and cheese and if their response was a little bit like broad and kiss, they would be set upon and slaughtered. Good so grief. surnames can be fairly have fairly dramatic consequences. You know, what's also really interesting for a linguist is that very often a surname will give you the first record of a name. So the Oxford English Dictionary will give you a surname. I think he was called Roger. I always call it Roger. And it was called Adam. Adam Bilberry Lip is the first quotation we have for Bilberry. Um, and that was in a court roll of 1584 in Nottingham. And Squib is first recorded in a nickname. Even the F word is recorded in surnames from the 13th century. So we've got a Mr. Windfuck in 1287. Now, you have Why to remember, would anyone be called Windfuck? Okay. <laughs> because As do you remember, you've forgotten our swearing episode in which I told you that fucking was all about hitting someone originally, not about loving someone or having sex with them. It's to do with striking. It's so it was striking. Yeah, so Windfucker, do you remember, was a name for the kestrel. So, so Mr. Windfuck probably took his... Pull yourself together, girl. <laughs> probably Mr. took his name from the Windfucker Kestrel. 
There's also, um, in the 13th century, there was a Mr. Fuck Butter, all to do with a butter monger knocking butter of blocks. Oh my goodness. Knocking blocks of butter. Uh, so butter into blocks for sale. That's what we think that one is. Oh, so, fuck butter. So it was somebody, as you know, when you made like uh, a portion of butter for someone to buy, yeah. there's a great vat of it. You take it out. And, and put you, it into blocks. You beat it into place. Yeah, and it was all about and, beating. And the word fuck actually means beat. You were beating yeah. the butter into place. Absolutely so right. he is the local fuck butter. Yes. And just to finish off, you've yep. got Alice Charwoman. That's the first record we have of Alice Charwoman. Charwoman. And Ralph Bullfinch. Oh, I like the sound of Ralph Bullfinch. I wonder what a group of bullfinches could be called. Maybe a Ralph or a Rafe. Well, in the episode Oxtercog last June, we delved into the fascinating world of collective nouns. Most people think of collective nouns in relation to animals, don't they? I mean, I think I'm right in saying that when it comes to jellyfish, it's a smack of jellyfish. People know it's a seat of badgers. I think that's right. C-E-T-E of badgers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Curiously, it's a deceit, spelt differently, of lapwings. It's a parliament of owls. Mm -hmm. That's quite nice, isn't it? Because they all sit, I suppose that's because the picture of them all sitting around on trees looking like a parliament. Well, it goes back to, parliament goes back to the Latin for uh, speaking and talking. So the parlour was the place where people would go and talk. And the parliament is where people do a lot of talking. So this is probably, you know, the, the collective noun for owls because they make a lot of hoops, I imagine. A pride of lions. Yeah. That's well known. That's good. A flight of swallows, a pitying of turtle doves. Mm-hmm. I love that. A covey of partridges, a gam of whales. Have you come across that one before? I haven't. I like that one. They're, they're good. They're all to do with animals, or most of them are to do with animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, um, I like this, a yap of chihuahuas, uh, a kindle of kittens. That's quite well known. Are these old? Are these new? Are they invented? How do they come about? Well, this is what's so strange. So, um, as you know, I've mentioned before on our podcast that people long for an authority in English. So people want uh, a government telling us what's correct and what's not. And um, failing that, because we don't have an academy, um, they look to the dictionary. And so often I am asked for what's the proper collective noun for... Um, I don't know, a group of radio engineers, for example. And uh, they want to know what the official term is. And the truth is there are no official terms. It's essentially, as with all of our languages, I've explained before, much to people's disgust quite often, it's democracy. So usage is king. But what's so strange about collective nouns is that they go back half a millennium to something called the Book of St Albans. And that is the primary source for our hit. Book of St Albans, as in the place St Albans. As in the place, yes. And what does this book contain? So the book contains, it was basically a manual for uh, noblemen of the time on hunting and hawking and other aristocratic pursuits. And it was reprinted over and over and over again. And um, and they just sort of slipped into the language as a result. Um, so it was attributed to a nun called Dame Juliana Burns. Oh, Barnes, sorry, Barnes. but it was sometimes written Burners, so various spellings. This was, this we have to remember this just before the time when Shakespeare's name was written in about 10 different ways, including by himself twice on a single document, his will. He spelt his name differently. Because? Twice. Because spelling was chaotic. 
it was printing really. It was printing. Caxton's printing press that that gave us our standard language. And before that, it was basically phonetic. It was all over the place, Same. and I loved that. It was happily chaotic. Um, anyway, she lived um, near the town of St Albans. There's various doubts over whether she was the true identity. She was the true author. Sorry, we do know that she was responsible for the section on hunting and hawking, and that's pretty much where these terms came from. But how extraordinary that these are the ones that slipped into the language. So, so superfluity what, yes. of nuns, for example. A superfluity of nuns. Have you heard of that? I've heard the phrase. It was because women who were considered to be uh, spinsters, who were unmarried, who um, were, you know, without a sort of firm vocation in life, were encouraged to join convents. And there were so many of them that uh, there literally there weren't enough convents to house them all, hence the superfluity of nuns. Is there a uh, collective noun for a collection of nuns? I mean... I, um, I asked, noun for collective noun. Yeah. I asked my friends on Twitter to send me some possibilities, and they came up with a confusion of collectives, a mm. bunch of collectives, a whimsy of collectives, a clutch of collectives, a gathering of collectives, a catch of collectives, a cacophony of collectives. But the one I thought was well, most clever, but it's got a kind of historical period feel to it, a Soviet of collectives. Ooh. Because older listeners will recall that when there was the Soviet Union, there were lots of collective farms. Mm. So a Soviet of collectives. That's very clever. I think I like cacophony. You like cacophony? Yeah, just for the sound. Now, while we relish the creativity involved with naming groups of animals, in the episode Dog's Body, we found that elsewhere in language, some animals get rather a raw deal. We love animals. What I want to ask you is why, when we use animals in our language, is it always negative? If you say somebody are catty, mm. okay? Uh, you say somebody they're batty. Mm-hmm. You say somebody, you know, your dog tired, sick as a pig, yeah. blind as a bat, timid as a mouse. All these things are negative. Should sick we as be a parrot. sick as a parrot? Yes. Should we be reporting the English language to the RSPCA? <laughs> How has this come about? It's really interesting you should say that. Well, I think it's partly because historically animals weren't treated in the same way as they may be today. So this is, you know, abattoirs and the food industry aside, we adore our cats and dogs for the most part, don't we? Um, And we are appalled um, as English-speaking nations when they're mistreated. But in the past, they really were. So if you have a hang dog expression, for example, that looks back to when Dogs were literally tried in courts for any misdemeanor. So if a, if a dog pinched some sausages from a butcher's, say, I mean, I'm probably, I'm probably talking about more heinous crimes than this, but it's quite possible that it would be tried in court and sentenced to death. Excuse me, a dog would be pulled into the court of law and a magistrate... I imagine it's just sausages, or to judge if it was something more serious, if it attacked a human being, the animal itself would be put on trial. Yes. Not the owner of the animal. Not the owner. Now, in modern law, it would be the owner of the animal. Quite right. not looking after your animal properly. Yes, But in those days, they could try... And so a hang dog dog is because it was sentenced. The judge put on the black cap, as it were, and I sentenced this dog to be hung... Was it hanged? Hanged. Hanged. You can explain that to me in a moment. Uh, To be hanged by the neck... Until he, she is dead. It's and they awful. will take it away and string up the dog. It's awful. It's awful. And this is fact. So it's this is a not dog's life. No, it's not. It's absolute fact. So it's a dog's life um, is another one. Dog's dinner, you know, quite negative, as you say, idioms associated with dogs. Um, 
Before you go on to the other ones, can I just quick... In the doghouse, mind uh, you, that's I, Peter Pan. Yes. Well, I, I want to come back now, but just okay. to clear this out, because otherwise we'll get so many letters about it. Yes. Uh, and if you do have a letter, it's purple at somethingelse.com, where you write to us, P-U-R-P-L-E, at something, without a G, else, or one word, dot com. Uh, hung and hanged. Yes. I know that when somebody is hanged by the neck because they're going to be executed, it is hanged. I know when something is well hung, it's different. Uh, what is the difference between hung and hanged? And why can't you say uh, he was hung when somebody was executed? I think it's purely a distinction from the past. It is actually very useful to us because it does um, offer, as I say, you know, it offers that sort of differentiation. So it's very clear what's been used. But I'm correct. It is hanged it when is executed. It is hanged. Um, and I wouldn't be remotely surprised if that does change over time. I think I've even used, um, I mean, I say even I, but, you know, I, I, I supposed no. to know what I'm doing. Uh, I have used them interchangeably, wrongly, on occasion when I haven't been thinking about it. But, yes, it's very, very specific now. Hang tight. It's time for a break. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Welcome back to this Best of Purple podcast. Before we crack on with some more highlights, after our break, of course, it's important to wash those hands, and we know we've got to do it in 20 seconds. I've been thinking about Prince Harry, or rather Harry, as we now have to call him this week, because he's just announced that the Invictus Games for this year have got to be cancelled. No Invictus Games till next year. He nicely joked that at least that gave the guys and girls another year to... <clears throat> get uh, up to speed. Anyway, uh, I thought I'd read a bit of Invictus, 20 seconds worth of it. This is the poem that inspired Prince Harry, as he then was, to create the Invictus Games. It's by somebody called William Ernest Henley, who lived from 1849 to 1903. And when you hear the poem, you'll see why it was such an inspiration to Prince Harry. Out of the night that covers me, Black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, but unbowed. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. OK, now... As we purple people know, the wonderful thing about podcasts is they can take you anywhere, transport you to somewhere you'd rather be. So even though I'm sitting here up in the attic at home, I'm going to close my eyes, pop on the episode Nemophilism and go for a walk in the woods. The vocabulary of nature just, I feel, is kind of ebbing away slightly and it needs to be uh, pulled back, particularly for our kids. And there's been so much debate about it recently, which we'll come to in terms of 
you know, the vocabulary of nature dropping dropping out of junior dictionaries um, and whether or not that's a, that's a good thing. But hopefully we will touch on some of the beautiful, resonant, evocative vocabulary that we have. So you're taking us today. for a walk in the woods. I am. Are you a wood lover? I was brought up in a town. I, I'm happy. I'm a townie. Hmm. Um, occasionally I've been to the country, uh, not for very long. I like the idea of going into a wood if there are bluebells there. Ah, oh, beautiful. But that's about it. You're I've an never urbanite. Even, you are I urbane. I can't see the wood for the trees. Uh, very good. What's the origin of that? Can't see the wood for the trees. Um, oh, gosh, that I think has been in uh, English for quite a long time. And the idea is obviously that you can't see the whole picture because there are, you can't see the whole forest or the whole wood because of the trees that are standing in the way. Personally, I love trees. There is a word for a lover of trees and a lover of woods and forests. Um, a lover of trees is a dendrophile and a lover of forests is um, a nemophilist. Isn't that beautiful? What's the difference between a wood and a forest? Do you know, I'm actually genuinely not sure. I just imagine that a forest is much denser and larger. Um, if you want the official dictionary definition, I can give it to you. It's not something I've ever pondered before. Do you know, that's what I love about my job, is that every single day there will be at least questions where I think I really should know the answer to that, and I don't. Okay, so wood originally meant, it comes from German, and it meant a tree, and then it was applied to a kind of collective, a collection of, of trees and a grove or a cop. So it's always been slightly uh, smaller. French uh, gave us forest from their forêt. So that would have come over after 1066 with the Normans. And it's an extensive tract of land. So I think it is all about size. As ever. Yeah. All comes back down to size. But actually that forest, um, I would just throw in here, um, ultimately goes back to the Latin, as so many French words do. Um, forest, meaning out of doors. And that idea of being outside gave us foreigner as well. Foreigner goes back to that same root. Forest yes. and foreigner yes. have the same root? Yes. Meaning? A foreigner is somebody who's sort of other and so outside the kind of general community they are strangers and a forest is a forest is just goes back to that latin for outdoors or outside Gosh. yeah you'll be excited to know that in a newspaper this week we have been described something rhymes with purple our podcast as a trailblazing podcast really yeah which is i think rather flattering and exciting and delightful mm. and they particularly like you it must be said, but I got a bit of a mention too. But I was then intrigued by the phrase trailblazing. What's yes. the origin of that? Oh, I love I loved the story behind this because, as you know, I'm a great advocate of American English, um, which is not a new infestation. There are some things I don't like, but some things I absolutely adore. And trailblazing goes back to the early settlers, so the, the people who set sail on the Mayflower or just after, and um, had to mark out their own settlements, literally go through the woods in order to find areas where they could set up habitations. Um, so my neck of the woods goes back to those very early days where presumably they described the land that they settled on according to its shape and it looked like an animal's neck, so they called it my neck of the woods. They also used to go through the forest and they would chip off a bit of bark from the trees in order to show the trail that they were taking so that others could follow and find them. And so they were literally, those were called blazers because they shone brightly. Um, so those exposed bits of flesh on the bark of a tree were the blazers that would then show you the trail. So that was the, they were the first trailblazers. Do you know who the real trailblazers are, though? You, the purple people. Every day we do get lots of emails from you posing all sorts of questions to keep us on our toes. Well, 
mainly um, Susie on her toes because she's the real lexicographer. I just, you know, chip in and try not to talk over her too much. Uh, anyway, um, you also suggest word games we can play, and I like word games. And anyway, it's a way of connecting the purple community from right across the globe. Thank you, and please keep in touch. We do love hearing from you wherever you are. Purple at somethingelse.com. Purple at somethingelse.com. Here, from the episode Gobby Linus, Susie takes on some big hitters. Uh, OK, listeners' questions. Um, shall I kick off? You please kick off. I have um, one from Helen Atkinson, uh, who contacted us on Twitter. She said she's curious to know the origins of kibosh. Um, she uses it often and it always seems to attract a wry smile. Well, Helen's chosen one of the big etymological mysteries of our time. We'd actually know completely where it comes from. It turned up, if you, if you trace the history, it's quite interesting because it turned up in a number of London newspapers written, it's about 1834. And it followed a case of two chimney sweeps who were convicted of touting for business publicly, which they were not allowed to do. And one of the newspapers reported that the judge put a kibosh on their plans. But quite what it is, we think it may have been a form of kosh. One uh, idea is that it was the name for a clog maker's tool, which was a heated hot iron, a heated iron rather, used to soften leather, could also be used as a weapon. Uh, so if you put the kibosh on it, you might just sort of beat it down. But we're not completely sure. It sounds Japanese. It sounds, it's, it's or it could sound, think, Yiddish. I mean, there's just so many possibilities. So we don't know. Still don't know. We are stumped by kibosh. Mm-hmm. So if you know definitively, do let us know. It's purple at somethingelse.com. Any other queries for us? Yes. Tron the first. Hi, Tron. I'm not sure. This is your Twitter handle, obviously. I'm not completely sure this is how you wanted to be named, but you didn't give me your name, so I'm sorry about that. But you ask, which came first when it comes to orange, the colour or the fruit? Uh, very easily answered this one. The fruit definitely came first. It was recorded about the 14th century when it kind of began to be um, imported into Britain. Orange came after, before the colour orange was named, people borrowed terms and mixed them together like yellow and gold and brown and red and things. They didn't actually have a word for that colour. Or amber, as in the traffic lights. Yeah. Red, amber, green. And they were called Belisha Beacons. No, that's something else. Those are the crossings. Belisha Beacons at crossings were named after Leslie Hoare Belisha, who was the Minister of Transport when they were introduced in the 1930s. And they, do they still have them? They were on sort of striped poles and it was a kind of flashing orange light at the top. you still get them at pedestrian crossings. So you get them at zebra crossings sometimes. So orange the fruit came before orange the colour. Yes, and orange is quite interesting for linguists because it's an example of what is boringly called meta-analysis in which the first letter of a word shifts to the end of the preceding word. So these are quite famous in English. Slow us down. Okay. Meta what? Meta-analysis. You don't need to remember that. Well, I'd like to. But Meta. i give you some examples. M-E-T-A. Yeah, meta-analysis. Um, so an apron used to be a napron, a napron uh, from the French nap, uh, which oh. also meant a tablecloth. An umpire used to be a noom pair, which was a non-peer. In other oh, words, it. it wasn't somebody who was um, on the same level as the players. An adder used to be a nader. Uh, and an orange... What does nader mean? Um, do you know, I was thinking that as I was saying it. I actually genuinely can't remember. N-A-D-D-E-R. Let me have a look. what an adder was before. 
Yeah, I think it's just an old English word for an adder, but where that comes from... Oh, this I'm is riveting. going to let you know. Tell and then an the orange was a naranja. It comes from the Sanskrit. Um, and eventually the N just fell off. Uh, well, it, it kind of joined the adder. Oh, that really was an episode full of fascinating facts. Or should that be an episode? Anyway, that's nearly it for this look back at the first 50 episodes of Something Rhymes With Purple. All the episodes are available for you to download, so if you've just joined us recently, do go back and start again from the beginning. Why not? In every episode, Susie gives us a trio of words, words that have fallen out of favour, words that perfectly sum up a feeling, words that she likes and she thinks we might like, and they're always brilliant. So before I leave you, I'd like to raise a glass to you, our purple listeners. What's what's Uh, Susie's trio for this week? Right. The first, of course, pub-related, shot clog. Shot, S-H-O-T-C-L-O-G. Yes. The pub companion who you only put up with because they're buying the next round. Oh, he's a shot. Centuries old, that one. He's a shot. He's a shot. He's a bit of an obstruction, but we'll put up with him because he's paying. Oh, how awful. Now, you're not one of these, but I'm one. And Paul and Lawrence, who are with us, are also. We are Tosspots. Because (laughs) the original Tosspots were simply drinkers who tossed back their bottle of beer. And then usually ask for another one. So we, we're not, yeah, they were kind of habitual drinkers. Maybe but the idea of to- is you're tossing it off, is it? Exactly. Well, so <laughs> but you're tossing off your drink. Yes. So call someone a toss pot is not actually as rude as you might think. Tosser is slightly different. Oh, tell us the difference between well, toss pot and tosser. Tosser is all about masturbating and toss pot is all about drinking. This is the charm of <laughs> something rhymes with purple. Is. We tell it as it is. What's the next one? Um, the third one is... Um, the friend who always turns up whenever they hear a, a cork popping or a beer can opening, and that is a lick spigot. Lick spigot, yeah. as opposed to lick spittle. Oh, yes, lick spittle is another good one. We should mention that in the what, political episode. What is a lick spittle? A lick spittle is somebody who just, it's a bit like a fart catcher that we mentioned in our politics. Oh, you episode. lick up somebody else's spittle. Yeah, horrible. You're so admiring them. Oh, their very spittle is attractive. Let me lick your spittle. Ugh. That's a lick spittle. This is really, a, really old, though. This is lick a lick spigot. One who licks the spigot, this is 1600, so 1599, a contemptuous name for a tapster or drawer. So it can be applied to a publican, but most often somebody always turns up when there's a smell of alcohol around. Oh. And we haven't even mentioned cock-a-hoop. Cock-a-hoop? Well, look, I'm feeling cock-a-hoop now. Let's end on cock-a-hoop. Cock-a-hoop goes back, apparently, to setting the cock on the hoop, which is apparently to turn on the tap and let the liquor flow. And the result is you are cock-a-hoop. And always, when Susie's given us her trio of words, I give you my quotation of the week. And this week, I've been dipping into Albert Camus' famous novel, La Peste. I've been reading it in translation. And I came across this line. In the depth of winter, I finally learned that within me there lay an invincible summer. I hope... During the coming weeks, they may be trying, whatever you are, uh, good luck, 
keep healthy. Well done, whatever you're doing, particularly if you're working, you know, in one of the special services that are helping us at this time. Whatever service you happen to be doing, whatever you're doing, um, I know you're being brilliant at it. Well done. And if you're at home feeling a bit strange and discombobulated, then download our first live episode, which went out on January the 21st, to find out more about the word discombobulated. That's it for this week. Don't forget to give us a nice review if you've enjoyed it. Recommend us to a friend uh, at a safe distance. Uh, Next week, um, I shall still be in London and Susie will be giving me a bell from Oxford. We'll be apart, but very much united as we uncover the words and language behind the technology that's going to make that possible. So please join us then. Something Rhymes with Purple is a Something Else production. It was produced by Lawrence Bassett with additional production from Steve Ackerman, Grace Laker and Gully. Oh, Gully, I must say, I've discovered this week exactly what you do. You're the fellow who pulls the knobs, swivels the levers. You make this happen. You could actually even cut me off in...